thank you for joining us for the study of God's Word today. Grab a Bible and listen carefully as God will be speaking to us through His Word today. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Thank you, Jesus. We're so blessed to have Jesus in the role of chairman of our elders, and our elders really love you. You don't know that, perhaps, because you have too little interaction with them, but they love this church, they love you, and are praying for you, and they covet your prayers. We covet your prayers as we are making major decisions regarding the future of our church, lifting up this church to the Lord. Excuse me while I clear my throat. Take your Bible and turn with me to the book of Romans, chapter 14. We're going to embark on a very ambitious journey this morning. And it'll probably be a first for me to preach through or teach through an entire chapter and part of another one. So don't go to sleep on me too quickly. Pray for me and yourself that you'll be able to endure to the end. Remembering the Bible says those who persevere to the end will be saved. So your salvation depends on it. A young pastor took his first charge. He was so excited, nervous, didn't know what to expect. He arrived to the church building. He was shown into his study, his office, if you will, and it was barren. No books, no boards filled with any kind of beautiful impressions from God's Word the desk behind which he would sit when he would counsel and where he would prepare messages was completely clean. Doesn't look like my desk if you've ever been in my office. It's quite the opposite. And then nothing was in any drawer. There was, however, a stack about that high of envelopes. And on the top of it were these words. When you encounter trouble, open these envelopes in the order in which they are stacked. Well, he said, well, I'm not going to borrow trouble. He opened the drawer on his right, put them in there, closed it. Didn't even think about them until six months into his pastorate, a problem came up in a business meeting of the church. It got out of hand quickly, and he didn't know what he was to do. He didn't have a class on how to manage church conflict at the seminary. So he said, time out, and he left. We didn't want to take a little recess. He goes, and he remembers where he had placed those envelopes, he takes the first one out, opens it, and it says, blame the former pastor. He puts it back in, shakes his head, comes in, said it's worth a try, and he did exactly what the advice said he should do. He blamed the pastor, and everything just calmed down. Unbelievable. Six months later, another business meeting. Same situation. Two factions got very angry and raised their voices. He said, time out, time out, time out. Let's take a recess. He went in, opened the second envelope. It said, blame the denomination. He said, well, I'll try. He went out, blamed the denomination. The result was everything got soothed over. Six months later, you guessed it, another problem. Time out. Goes into his office, takes out the final envelope, opens it, and it says, prepare three more envelopes. That, that church 
had had a history of trouble with their pastors and the pastor with the church. Well, the Apostle Paul was, in effect, the pastor of the Roman church. He had not been there, but he had been praying for them. He writes this lengthy letter, if you will. It's really his understanding based on what Jesus had revealed to him about the gospel of Christ. He calls it actually the gospel of God in the introduction. He was addressing very few problems there. In fact, we're going to look at the only noticeable problem he faced. In churches like the Galatian church or the church at Colossae and the church at First Thessalonians, of First and Second Thessalonians, the Thessalonican church, there were always problems that prompted communication from the apostle to the churches which he had begun. He was, in effect, their pastor, even though he was not with them at that time. There was a problem here in this church, as I mentioned. It was not primarily a theological problem, although it does have theological connections. You see, in this church, there were what appeared to be irreconcilable differences of opinion is what we're going to see. They really weren't theological, biblical differences. They were differences of opinion about what it means to follow the Lord Jesus Christ in the practice of your faith. And to complicate things, there was no word in the Scripture which addressed the problem. It was silent, the Bible was, practically on it. And maybe just a little hint of it in different places. But this was a thing that was tearing the church apart. It had not yet rifted the church but it had the capacity for that. The Apostle Paul, being proactive, listening to the Spirit of God, writes the 14th and part of the 15th chapter of Romans to address the issue. Just as surely as the Roman church had this sort of challenge, churches throughout history have these kinds of challenges. And there is a blueprint here for us, us as a small body of believers compared to the whole body of Christ in this city, in this state, in this world. But we are people who need to learn from what Paul taught that church. We need to guard against doing what they were tending to do. They were trending toward elevating non-essentials to the level of essentials. In the process, they were not looking at what God would have them to do. And so Paul gives them insight into how to overcome these differences which threatened to rupture the fellowship in the church. Before I go on any further, let me just make this observation. We always, as a body of believers, must be on our guard that... We see to it that we keep the main thing the main thing. That Jesus Christ is Lord. And all that is associated with His Lordship. And part of that will be revealed in this passage of Scripture. So let's begin as we look at this passage of Scripture in verse 1. Paul begins by writing, Now, keep on accepting, is literally what the language says, keep on accepting the one 
who is weak in faith. And I'll, let me stop there just a moment. I want to make it clear, and you're going to see this as we go through the passage of Scripture. Paul wasn't speaking in a derogatory way toward people who were weak in their faith. This is a weakness that's not related to embracing the doctrine of the church once and for all delivered by the apostles. It had nothing to do with the doctrine per se. But they were weak in the sense that they, as we're going to see in just a second, they had held on to the dietary and the laws associated with the Sabbath keeping and also the, I guess you'd say the festivals, Passover, Pentecost, and all those things. They believed you had to do those kinds of things to be in the best relationship with the Lord. And it left them very nervous. They were always wondering, am I doing enough to please the Lord? Because of their background and what they had perhaps heard other people saying they needed to be doing. Let's read the last part of verse 14. But not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions, except, this is a message that we're going to see reiterated in this verse, in this chapter, that we are to accept, if we find ourselves in the position of being a strong believer, as compared to the weak believer, which is mentioned here, we need to both, depending on which camp you might find yourself in, and there's a lot in between, I might add. Maybe you wouldn't find yourself either as a weak or a strong. But be careful of passing judgment regarding to things which could be called disputable matters. Things that the Scriptures do not directly address. He goes on to describe what was characteristic of those who are weak in faith. Verse 2, One man has faith that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats vegetables only. There were vegetarians in the church. Now, these were people, as I mentioned earlier, who probably were Jewish people, or at least God-seeking Gentiles, wanting to know the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And these people had quit eating meat, period, because they were concerned that it was not prepared properly. Those who sold them the meat didn't prepare it in a kosher fashion, if you will. And so they were eating vegetables. They were so finicky, not because of their health, but because of their concern that they would offend the Lord by not keeping the laws of the Old Testament strictly. Verse 3 says, Let him who eats regard not, not, let not him who eats regard with contempt him who does not eat. Let's stop here just a moment. This would be the strong group. Don't treat people who still believe they need to observe the dietary laws of the Old Testament with contempt. This word is a word which means to look down on people. Have you ever had someone look at you and sort of shake their head with a smirk on their face? I don't think we could even call it a smile, just kind of smirk at you and say, without saying words, Oh, if you only knew, you poor, pitiful thing. You ever had that happen to you? It is it's clearly communicated without words, isn't it? 
And so he says, you who think you're strong, don't look down on those with contempt who don't feel free to eat whatever. And let not him who does not eat judge him who eats, for God has accepted him. Whom has God accepted? Who has God accepted? Anybody who is in Christ. Go to chapter 15 for just a moment. We'll take a leap forward to the last verse of the text that we're looking at today, to verse 7 of 15 of Romans. Wherefore, keep on accepting. He comes back to the idea. Keep on accepting one another, just as Christ also accepted us to the glory of God. Who are we to judge people who are part of the family of God? I'll talk more about that a bit later. But let me read this verse 3 again. Look at it carefully. I'm going to interpret a little bit more as I read. Let not him who eats keep on regarding with contempt him who does not eat. And let not him who does not eat keep on judging. Can you see these two factions in the church? And they were arguing over whether to eat or not to eat. That was the question for them. Verse 4 tells us that we, in accepting other people in the body of Christ, we are really welcoming them into our lives because the word that is repeated here, translated accepted, that's used in the first verse and all over again in chapter 15, the seventh verse, is a word which is used. Let me give you some illustrations of this from the New Testament. I'm going to give you three times when this is used, and it'll help you to get a sense of the warmness of this. It's a word which suggests welcoming someone in to your own fellowship, but also, more importantly, into your heart. We are to do that, just like the Lord accepts us in Christ. And we're part of His family, a fellowship. In the book of John, you know Jesus talks about In John chapter 14, he says, Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. And when I come again, listen, I will receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. The word translated received in John 14, 3 is the identical word that Paul uses three times in this passage of Scripture Translated, accept. Receive. Jesus is coming again. He's going to receive us to himself. Bill Park had Jesus come to him a little over a week ago. He did not go up in the air. He was not translated. His spirit and soul went to be with the Lord. His body's going to come out of the grave, just like all the bodies of all the human beings who've ever lived some to eternal life and some to eternal judgment. He's going to delight in that, but he was received by Christ. He was welcomed. The first face he saw when he drew his last breath was the face of Jesus coming to receive him. Remember when Paul was shipwrecked on the Isle of Malta. The Bible tells us in the 28th chapter of Acts how a man named Publius, who was described by Luke as the leading man of that island, greeted Paul and all the survivors. And by the way, over 200 people were on that boat. It wrecked on a reef, ringing Malta, and every one of them was saved, survived. But 
they were welcomed. Amazing. Paul writes to Philemon, his son in the faith. He tells him that another son in the faith who had at one time and still was legally a slave of this man Philemon was going to bring this letter to him. He said, now when he gets there, listen carefully, Paul. I want you to receive him as if it were I who is there, not he. And that was a way of saying, receive him warmly, because there was a close relationship. Philemon was indebted to the Apostle Paul, for it was he who had brought the gospel to Colossae. And this man, Philemon, received that. It was at least to receive it. And we know from extra-biblical record that this man Onesimus was probably freed. It doesn't say exactly, but there is evidence that a man named Onesimus shortly after this, within a decade after this, became the bishop of the church at Colossae. He was set free in the Lord when he heard the gospel in Rome and he gave his life to Jesus. And then his owner saw him as a brother in Christ in reference to what Paul had said and he set him free. So this is the kind of welcome we have in Christ. This is the kind of welcome we are to show to one another. Do you have that kind of inclination in your heart? When you think of your brothers and sisters in Christ, do you look forward to seeing them so that you can welcome them into your fellowship, to minister to them, to care for them? This idea of being accepted is an idea that speaks of unconditional acceptance. I need to put a caveat in here. This does not believe that we just embrace anyone who comes to our fellowship without knowing something about their walk with the Lord. The church of Jesus Christ is made up of those who know the Lord Jesus Christ. It is not simply okay. It's our responsibility to minister to people and without any kind of arrogance and humility, would you tell me about your walk with the Lord? Would you share with me how you have come to know Jesus and what he means to you? So, the church is for people who know Jesus. But within the context of the church, we're to have this welcoming heart and the atmosphere of welcome, acceptance, is to be the case. There are... Three things that I want to mention regarding the solution to the problem in the church at Rome about division in the church over disputable matters. And it would apply to this church or any church since that time or as long as Jesus tarries and does not come to receive the church to himself and take us all to be with him in heaven. The first observation is judgment belongs to God. It does not belong to us. I've already mentioned just a moment ago that we are to have discernment. Jesus does say, and he's often quoted, people love to quote what Jesus says in Matthew 7, 1, where he says, judge not that you be not judged. But they're not really as keen on going 14 verses deeper into that chapter and quote what Jesus says, beware of false teachers. How are we able to be, to be beware of false teachers? We need to know what's true, and we need to listen carefully 
to what teachers say, evaluating what they say by the Word of God to see if it is, is in fact, the truth. The Apostle Paul went to a little town of little significance. It was called Berea. As he left Thessalonica, he went there and he found a synagogue and he taught in the synagogue and there were people who believed. And the Bereans, by Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, describes the way they responded. These Bereans, they received the message of Paul with a certain degree of joy. In fact, a lot of joy. But they went home and what they did was they measured what they had heard from the Apostle Paul by the Word of God. Let me tell you, any preacher, teacher of the Bible welcomes the scrutiny of what he teaches if he really is a teacher of God's Word. Because the last thing I would want to do or anyone else would want to do who is a teacher of the Bible is to give wrong truth. It wouldn't be truth if it's wrong, but to give out information. So, what we need to know here is we need to welcome, but also we need to be safe about who becomes part of our fellowship and the people whom we allow to teach the Word of God. We want to be sure of their faith in the Lord and their commitment to rightly divide the Word of truth. We welcome such people. Because God has welcomed these people. We've already seen that in verse 7. He's welcomed. He's accepted us. And who are we to reject people whom God has received? He has welcomed them. Therefore, we are to welcome them. Also, we are to welcome them because Christ died and was raised again in order that he might become their Lord. We are not Lord over our brothers and sisters in Christ. We're peers with them. Look at verse 4. Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master he stands or falls. Who is your master if you know Jesus Christ? Am I your master? No. Who is your master? It's the Lord Jesus Christ who is our master. And I shouldn't meddle into a relationship between you and Jesus, nor you in my relationship with him, because we're not equipped to be such meddlers. And stand he will, he goes on to write, for the Lord is able to make him stand. Who gives us the capacity to stand in the spirit of the Lord and walk with the Lord? None other than Jesus himself. Verse 5 says, one man regards one day above another, and another regards every day alike. Let each man be fully convinced in his own mind. So there was this disparity regarding diet, these two groups, but also about days that should be observed. Some said, hey, we need to keep on observing Sabbath day as the Sabbath, just like we did when we were still anticipating the Messiah before we met Jesus and we accepted him as our Lord and Savior after he had accepted us. And there were the other people who were, in effect, saying that, hey, we don't have to worry about all that stuff anymore. Those are the ones who Paul speaks of as being strong in this passage of Scripture. Verse 6 says, He who 
observes the day, observes it for the Lord. Now listen carefully. And he who eats does so for the Lord. Who's that talking about? The weak ones. And what's the Word of God telling this group of Romans? And what would the Lord say to us? If a person wants to observe dietary matters without attaching some saving value to that or wants to observe the Sabbath without attaching some saving value to that or the festivals, more power to the person. But that is not the ideal that God has because Jesus Christ fulfilled all the law. He fulfilled the dietary law. He filled the ceremonial law. He fulfilled all the customs that are part of the teaching of the law. But he, in fulfilling that, made it possible for us not to be renegades, just to follow him and walk in freedom. The middle of verse 6 says, For he gives thanks to God, that is, the weak person who loves the Lord, gives thanks to God by observing these laws. And he who eats not, for the Lord, he does not eat, he does not eat and give thanks to God. So, we see that. We don't eat if we are people who don't find it necessary because we're free in Christ. We know that's what's taught in the New Testament by Paul and others. And Jesus himself taught it, didn't he? Why do we read Mark 7? Why do we read? What does Jesus say in Mark 7 about clean and unclean foods? He basically says it's not what goes in your mouth that makes you unclean. It's what comes out of you which makes you unclean. And the uncleanness in a person's heart, and there's a long list of traits of people who are unclean. All of that uncleanness is something that is in you, in your heart. Therefore, the important thing is not what you eat is what the Word of God is teaching you. It's what's in your heart. We know who's in our heart, do we not? Jesus, if we know him by his spirit, lives in our hearts. Look at verses 7 through 9, which talk about this matter of Christ dying and being raised again in order that he might be the Lord of all of his people, whether weak or strong. And remember, he's not talking about false Christians here. He's talking about two ways of looking at the Christian faith. Seven, he says, for not one of us lives for himself and not one dies for himself. It doesn't matter if you're weak or strong or somewhere in between. We all do not live for ourselves. Verse eight says, for if we live, we live for the Lord. Isn't that what it means to have Christ as your Lord? He's your man. He's the one who controls your life. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and the living. He's always going to be your Lord once you know him. Here's another reason we should welcome our brother, our weaker brother. If we're on the other side, or you know, it's kind of hard to know whether you're weak or strong. We have illustration here. It's not a, we don't need to debate that. But regardless of where you are in your thinking on something that would be a disputable matter. Let me give you a theological area. That would be teaching on the second coming of Jesus Christ. Do you believe Jesus is coming again? I do. I believe it with all my heart. 
But there are various ways of interpreting the way he's going to come. You know, Jesus is coming one way. That's it. He's not coming 18 different ways. He's going to come one way. I think I know the way he's going to come. That's another sermon altogether. But I may be wrong, and I'll be perfectly satisfied if I'm wrong. Because I don't have to be right about that. I just know he's coming again. And I want to be ready, and I want to help other people get ready. One of my teachers in seminary, we were having this discussion in a class that he was teaching. It was, I think, on the book of First Peter. And the subject of the second coming came up. And Dr. J.W. McGorman, he'll be 100 years old in December. Amazing. He's still living, still coherent. And he was a tremendous teacher. And he said, men, we're not on the welcoming committee. We're on the preparation committee. Our responsibility is help other people get ready to receive Christ. So when he comes, they'll be ready and they'll be with the Lord as we are. So there are even these kinds of differences about interpreting the Bible. But we all do agree Jesus is coming again. That's an example of that. So we also are to welcome People who are on another side of a disputable matter as our brother. That's why we welcome. Look at verse 10, the first sentence. But you, why do you judge your brother? We're family. We're not here to tear each other apart. We're here to build each other up, as we're going to see. The fourth reason we're to welcome one another who know Christ, even though there may be a difference of opinion about some things, is because we'll all stand before Christ to give an answer for our lives. This is sobering. Look at the next sentence in verse 10. Are you again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of God. He's saying, you who are strong, why are you looking down your snotty, snobby, spiritual nose at people who are people whom Christ died for. He's Lord. Pray for them. Live your life out, a life of loving acceptance with them, and have fellowship with them, is what he would say. For it is written, verse 11, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall give praise to God. So then each one of us shall give account of himself to God. That's the sobering part. We revel in what we are told earlier in the book of Romans, chapter 8, verse 1. Romans 8, 1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's awesome, isn't it? That's music to my ears. Christ paid the full penalty for my sin. And there is no undoing what God did in saving me. I've been justified by faith. Through the Lord Jesus Christ. And I have peace with God. Praise the Lord for that. That I have that relationship. And it's not unique to me. I'm like the rest of you. But however, I am going to give an account of my life after Christ came into my life. This is told here. It's also alluded to by Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Where he says, we will all have to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Now, what does that mean? What does that amount to? What it doesn't amount to is what I've already said. 
you will not be exed out of the kingdom. Once in, always in. That's not to be something that is used against God. It should be a motivation to want to honor Him. And I believe that's characteristic of people who know the Lord. They don't enjoy sinning, maybe for the moment, but they don't like a lifestyle of sinning. But what happens is, I will stand before the Lord. He will evaluate my life. Paul writes about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, if you'd like to look at it. He said, all of us lives in Christ begin with the same foundation. And what or who is that foundation? It's Jesus Christ. And then we are to build our lives out of one of two kinds of materials. The illustration is gold, silver, precious stones. The other would be wood, hay, straw. And our lives will be tested as by fire. That doesn't mean we're going to be burned in the literal sense. But what will happen is the Lord will take us one-on-one, I believe. I don't know if there's going to be a gallery there watching. I used to be really concerned about that. But the more I've known people and talked to them about their walk with God, they won't be worried about me. They'll be thinking about what's going to happen when I get before Jesus, right? Because there's going to be a lot of stuff that has happened in our lives that will be wasted. It'll just be gone. My pastor used to say, the judgment seat of Christ, when people finish, they'll look like a slice of Swiss cheese. There'll be a lot of holes, a lot of gaps in their life because they live for themselves. They didn't live in dependence upon the Holy Spirit to reproduce His life. But as we trust God, we live to honor the Lord. We live recognizing that apart from Christ, we can do nothing. But at the same time, believing what the Bible says, that I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. We will stand before the Lord. And the Lord won't be frowning at you that day. I mean, just like that, all that needs to be burned will be burned. And then you and I will carry that with us into heaven. We'll receive a reward there at the judgment seat of Christ. It'll be great for us. But I can't be your judge in the sense of pointing a finger at you. I do know what the Bible says, however, in Galatians chapter 6. If a brother is caught in a trespass, let those of you who are spiritual go to him and restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Gentleness and humility. This is our calling as followers of Christ. We're to have a heart for our brothers and sisters who have wandered away from the faith. We're to help them come back. We're to welcome them. Now, we're not to judge one another. Is that clear? I hope it is. If we're going to be a solution to the problem like existed in the church at Rome, where there were these two factions described as the weak and the strong, we are also going to realize that God's love requires self-denial for others' sake. We don't live for ourselves anymore. When we come to Jesus, that is radically rearranged. We live for the Lord because we belong to Him, 
but by virtue of our ties to him, we are tied to all the other brothers and sisters in Christ. We welcome someone who is in another camp in some way because he's our brother for whom Christ died. Let's look again at verses 14 through 16. I know and am convinced in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but to him who thinks anything to be unclean, to him it's unclean. For if because of food your brother is hurt, you are no longer walking according to love. Do not destroy. This means tear down, literally is what it means. It was a word used in construction in Jesus' day to describe a building that was being demolished. Do not demolish with your food him for whom Christ died. Don't flaunt it. Don't throw it in his face. Therefore, do not let what is for you a good thing be spoken of evil. What's the good thing? Freedom. We are free in Christ. It has to do with food. We're going to see later it has to do with wine. It has to do with everything. But if we really understand our responsibility and realize that we have been called to help people be built up and not to stumble. A great fear I've had, not like I'm quaking with it, but I think about it frequently. I have, as I reflect on it, for 60 years, I have been committed because I was taught this as a child. As a 10-year-old in vacation Bible school, I remember it as if it were last summer. And I remember making a promise to God, Lord, with your help, I will do my best not to cause others to stumble. Have I been perfect in that? Well, I've been your pastor for 26 years, and you know me well enough to know I haven't. I'm not perfect. But it is my heart, and the Lord has put that in my heart. He's put that in all your heart if you'll take a look carefully at Him and look how He lived to help people progress, not fall off in a ditch somewhere or regress. You'll be one who would not want to do that either. Don't take what is for you a good thing, eating whatever I want to, because in the book of First Timothy... Paul says, or he says, whatever you eat, if it's sanctified by the Word of God, it's good to go. You can eat whatever you want to eat. But don't use that as something that will cause others to lose ground spiritually. Verse 17, this is one that many of you may have memorized. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking. Here he's turning his attention away from the free group, the people are free, to the fearful group. The people are fearful because they're afraid they will miss dotting some I or crossing some T and doing everything just right. There are certain personalities that tend in that direction. If you're perfectionistic, you're melancholy, perhaps you're perfectionistic, this is part of my makeup, you want to do everything right. And part of it, it can easily bridge over into legalism. We have to be careful. We need to obey the Lord for sure. Whatever he says, we're to obey and enjoy the obedience because the Bible says God's commands are not burdensome. In another place, the Bible says, I run in the way of your commands for you have set my heart free. There's only freedom in staying within the boundaries which God has established for us in the first place. So we follow the Lord and we see Him. But in this passage, the kingdom of God is not eating or drinking. So you people who are 
former Jews or people who studied Judaism before you met Jesus as the Messiah, you need to be careful, is what he's saying to the people in the church. You need to be careful that you don't elevate what you eat and what you drink as a badge of honor. You need to keep Christ as the one that you raise high. He is the one who is to be honored. But, he goes on to say, righteousness, this is the kingdom of God, is about righteousness, and it's about the idea of justification. The Bible says in Romans 5.1, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Joy unspeakable. When we know Christ, we have that joy. That's the kingdom of Christ. It's the kingdom of God. For he who in this way serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. What makes us most pleasing to God? How are we more fulfilled? It's when we understand that we are free in Christ and we can have and do have righteousness, peace, and joy already in the Holy Spirit. Verse 19, So then, let us pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. This should be our M.O. as a church. And by the way, you have as much a responsibility as I do to see that that happens. The building up of the body. Christ gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, some to be pastors and teachers. I'm a pastor teacher. I have a responsibility. And my responsibility is to equip you by teaching the Bible, discipling you from this venue and smaller venues. My responsibility is to rightly divide the word of truth in discipling you. And the point of that is so that you will be equipped and you will do the ministry. Do you know you're in the ministry, according to Ephesians chapter 4, if you know Christ? You don't have to be ordained. In fact, if you're not ordained, you're probably in a better position to impact people than I am. I have an audience, obviously, on a weekly basis, but you can travel incognito. It's like you're an undercover agent for the Lord. And God will use you as you walk in the Lord. And you will also be used through your spiritual gift or gifts to build up the body of Christ. It's beautiful who we are in Christ, what Christ has done for us. Awesome. So, love requires self-limitation. Let's read a couple more verses before we look at the final point. Stop tearing down the work of God for the sake of food. It's a food fight in many churches. It's a food fight over something that's incidental and secondary at best. It's not all that important. And so many churches have split over the most ridiculous things. I mean, the ridiculous things. And the Scripture says, All things indeed are clean, but they are evil for the men Man who eats and gives offense. We don't want to offend people. You don't have to walk around worrying if you're offending somebody. The way you do it, you love people. And love takes care of everything else. If we read and study what the love of God is, and that's all over the Bible. It's just responding to the Lord where Jesus says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. 
And earlier in that same passage, he says, and this is my commandment, that you love one another even as I have loved you. Look at Jesus. See how he loved. And say, Jesus, would you love people through me? That's a prayer that Jesus will always answer. It is good, verse 21 says, not to eat meat or to drink wine or to do anything by which your brother stumbles. That covers a multitude of problems, doesn't it? If we started living, if I started and you started, if we started living this way, where we're conscientious, not fearful that we'll fall out of favor with God, but concerned that we don't make someone stumble. Jesus has strong words for those who make others stumble. He says it's better to have a millstone tied around your neck and be cast into the sea than to make one of these little ones stumble. It's debated as to whether the little ones refer to children. It would certainly include children. But many times Christ talked about us as disciples as his little ones. Anything I do that will make you stumble, I need to repent of and go forward and ask the Lord to keep me from doing that again in my life. And the same is true for you as well. Look at verse 22. The faith which you have, have as your own conviction before God. Be convicted of what you have. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. That's a sobering statement for me. Happy are you, Mike Woods, that you do not condemn yourself in what I approve. I need to be careful about that. But he who doubts is condemned if he eats So, if you're worried about something, you you doubt about whether you should eat something, you go ahead and eat it, don't eat it or drink it or do anything. That's playing it safe and it's not the wrong thing to do. Otherwise, it would not be stated because his eating is not from faith and whatever is not from faith is sin. The The bottom line of sin is unbelief. The third solution, the first solution, what is it? Judgment belongs to God, not to us. The second is, love requires self-denial on my part and your part for others' sake. This is the solution to the issue of factions in a church based on disputable matters. Now look at verse 1 of chapter 15. We're to follow Christ's example of acceptance. So I'm just going to read through this with very little comment. Verse 1 says, Now we who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not just please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good. This would be our brothers and sisters in Christ. The word neighbor here is not used in the broader sense that Jesus uses it when he teaches the parable of the Good Samaritan. And we're to please our neighbor for what person purpose? For that neighbor's in Christ edification. In other words, spiritual growth. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached thee fell upon me. For whatever was written in earlier times, that would be what we call the Old Testament, was written for our instruction that through perseverance and the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another, according to Christ Jesus. Paul speaks to the church at Ephesus in chapter 2, saying essentially the same thing. Be of the same mind. How's that possible? A.W. Tozer wrote this last century. 100 pianos tuned to the same tuning fork are in tune with each other. Do you know how we get on the same page? 
It's not be by being badgered by me to get on the same page. It's that we focus on Jesus as our Lord. In Him there is neither Jew nor Greek, neither male nor female, or any other kind of contrast we might want to draw. But we are all one in Christ Jesus. That beautiful psalm, Psalm 133, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity. It's like oil coming down on the head of Aaron and on the beard of Aaron and then all the way down to the hem of his garment. Do you know what oil represents in the Bible? It represents the Holy Spirit. The church cannot be what God intended it to be if we are not in such a relationship with the Lord. We must trust the Lord in this way. Ask Him to fill us with the Holy Spirit. Verse 7 says, That with one accord you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Some of you know the hymn, To God Be the Glory, Great Things He Has Done. So loved He the world that He gave us His Son. And then what is the chorus? Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Let the earth hear His voice. Now think about this with me. How does that compute? We're to give glory to God. And then the chorus says, let the earth hear his voice. How does the earth hear his voice? It's through the church of Jesus Christ. We are the body of Christ. So as we think about this matter, our city, our country, our world has been racked by COVID-19, hasn't it? Our lives have been altered. 2020 is a watershed year in the history of the world, and especially in our country. We feel in many ways violated because of what's happened, because of what it's done to loved ones. And maybe even some of you have been a victim of COVID-19 and are recovered. But what we need to know is when your leaders call upon you, They have prayed and asked the Lord, Lord, we know, and I'm telling you this, we know that the law says from the governor's office all the way down to the county judge, the Samaniego, when he issued his order on Friday, in it there was an exception for religious services as it pertains to wearing masks. So I'm probably in the camp of Wanting, I know probably about it, I want to be a man who walks in the spirit of this chapter. So even though I would rather not wear a mask, I'm going to wear one. And I'm going to do it because I don't want to cause someone to stumble. And that's a personal decision that you and I have to make. Nobody's going to make you do it because we want to adhere to the law that has been set over us. If we had time, we would look at Romans 13 for that. And for those of you who wear masks and you wear them for principle, not just for protection, then more power to you. Stick to your, convic- to your conviction. And in the meanwhile, let all of us, whether we prefer masks or we prefer no mask, let us take to heart the teaching of the Scripture. My personal preference holds no water to the conviction that comes from the Lord when he says what he says to us 
in this passage of Scripture. You know, we're to accept one another even as the Lord accepts us. Let's pray. Today we want to pray for Bethany Hatch. She's here with us today. And then also for Irene Armanderas Jackson. These dear women have waged a long and valiant run at public office. And we're going to pray for you, Bethany, here. And then Irene, we pray for her. She's somewhere worshiping the Lord, I'm sure, today. Father, we do thank you for this teaching today from your word in Romans. Help us to be men and women who are eager to promote the building up of the body of Christ. Help us not to be ashamed of you and your words, Lord. Help us not to get lost in disputable matters to the exclusion of preaching the gospel because we know it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. So help us not to lose sight of our primary purpose. And Father, we do pray that you be with Bethany. Bless her mightily, Lord, in this last two days of the campaign. We pray that there would be support for her in her pursuit of being a state senator for our area. We also pray for Irene as she too is in the last leg. She can see the finish line too. We pray that you would give her the stamina as well to finish strong and the support that you would give her, Lord. I know she would be so grateful for We pray for victory in these ladies' lives and in their pursuit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you. That was a message from Pastor Mike on accepting one another. We hope you enjoyed it and were encouraged in your pursuit in knowing Jesus. We look forward to seeing you next week.